We turn together in the scriptures to Psalm 14. Psalm 14, and we will read the entire psalm. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord? There were they in great fear. For God is in the generation of the righteous. Ye have shamed the counsel of the poor, because the Lord is his refuge. O oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion, when the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. Here we end our reading of the scriptures. The basis of this psalm and the whole Bible We consider the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 3. Right now we are working through Lord's Day 3, one question at a time, and we are up to question and answer 7. Whence then proceeds this depravity of human nature? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. Hence our nature is become so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. Beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ, last time we sat under the instruction of our Heidelberg Catechism, we looked at the wonderful doctrine of creation and Specifically, God's creation of man. We saw that God created man good in the beginning. And in the words of Psalm 8, which we looked at, Psalm 8 verse 5, we saw that God made man a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. Now we flip ahead just a couple pages in our Bibles. When we come to Psalm 14, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. A very different portrait of mankind is set before us in Psalm 14. Because man is not what he once was. God created man good. God made man to be his image bearer. God created man perfect. But something happened. The effects and results of which are described in Psalm 14. Something terrible 
happened. The historical event which the Bible reveals in Genesis 3 and which we know as the fall. The terrible fall in which mankind turned away from the one true and living God and turned to the devil and turned to sin and willfully subjected himself to sin and became a rebel race opposed to God so that the aftermath of that terrible event is what we read in Psalm 14, that man by nature is gone aside, has become altogether filthy and corrupt in his sin. Devastating historical event the fall was. The event which explains the human condition as it is today. This world is full darkness. Desolation, death, evil that abounds. Explains our own proneness to sin and to turn aside and walk after the devices of our own hearts, our own proneness to hate God and neighbor. It goes back to this event, the fall. Just as understanding creation and how God made man in the beginning, we saw that that was a truth foundational for our worldview, foundational for our self-understanding and our understanding of the meaning and purpose of life and our understanding of the world. So too, this is another one of those foundational truths apart from which we cannot understand ourselves or understand life or this world, the fall. We must understand this event that changed everything. The fall of man. It helps us know us, know ourselves as we are now. But it also opens the way for us to see our true hope. True hope. Denial of the fall, as men are prone to do today, doesn't get anywhere good. It doesn't lead to any hope. It must be explained, where did evil come from? Why is there so much suffering? Why is this world so full of darkness? And if you deny the historical event of the fall, then one of two things must be your answer. Either God made it this way, and this is just the way things are, and God is the author of evil, or there is no God, and evil really is just the natural byproduct of evolutionary processes. And it's always been there, and it'll always be there, and there's no escape from it. That's hopelessness. But when we embrace this gospel truth that there was a fall, we embrace what the rest of the Bible tells us, that there is a Savior who came precisely to rescue us from our fall, then there is hope. Then there is hope. So in the sermon this morning, we're going to sit under the instruction of the catechism based on the word of God and look again at this familiar historical truth of the fall of man. See how bad it was that we may see anew how wonderful our Savior is. The fall is the subject and our theme is mankind's fall into sin. We're first going to look at our fall, what the fall was and the fact that it is ours. Secondly, we'll ask the question, how far? How far did man fall? And then finally, we will see that God's fallen people are caught in the arms of his grace. 
We're going to start with a question that perhaps comes to our minds when we think about the fall. If God made man good in the beginning, how can it be that man who was good fell into sin? Wouldn't man's original goodness stop him from falling as he did? How could the fall happen? After all, God made man in his own image, in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. How is it possible that man could fall from this state in which he was made? Man was sinless. Meaning God made his whole nature morally upright and ethically perfect. There was inside of man in the beginning no inclination to evil, no proneness to go in a way that was not right, no proneness to hate God or the neighbor. In fact, his every inner inclination and drive was precisely the opposite. He was made perfect in holiness and thus he was able and willing and desirous and did consecrate his whole nature and being and life to the glory of God in love. That was man in the beginning. As our Belgic Confession says in Article 14, God made man capable in all things to will agreeably to the will of God. Man's will and God's will were completely aligned in perfect harmony. And yet, man as created was lapsable. And that term used in theology, lapsable, simply means able to fall, able to be tempted, capable of disobeying God's word. Now, no temptation ever arose from within our first parents in paradise. There was no inner inclination towards evil, but they could be tempted from the outside. If a tempter came and lured them, We must understand that this was not a defect in God's original creation, not a moral flaw in man as God made him in the beginning, but this was part of his constitution as a moral, rational creature. God gave to the human race a mind and a will, and God called man to use his mind in the service of God and to will agreeably to the will of God. And yet, man's original perfection was not the highest perfection. Though he had no inner inclination to sin, he was capable of sinning. Man had not yet been brought by God to that highest level of perfection in which sin is no longer even a possibility. And maybe that leads to the question in our minds, why didn't God make man That way in the beginning. Why did God make man good yet able to fall? There's a couple parts to that answer. The first part has to do with God's covenant. God created Adam and Eve in the beginning in covenant with him, meaning in relationship with him, in a relationship of love and friendship with him. And part of that relationship is God willed them consciously to love and live for him every day. And to live already in paradise an antithetical life. Saying no to all that God said no to. And yes to all that God said yes to. God gave Adam and Eve a will. And God caused them to 
or called them to exercise that will in harmony with his own will. Now you think of the commandment of life that God gave in Genesis 2.17, in which he commanded our first parents not to eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. And that tree stood there and was the means by which Adam and Eve lived an antithetical life. They would see that tree and think upon God's command and say, No, because God says no. And I love my God and I serve my God. And whatever he says no to, I don't want any part of that. That was Adam and Eve's calling within the covenant relationship God had created them in. They loved their God and they showed their love to him by saying no to that tree. And saying yes to God each and every day. And that glorified God. When Adam and Eve, the pinnacle of his creation, each day willed and lived agreeably to his divine will. And so that's part of the answer. Why God made man good and yet able to fall. That original way in which man was made served the glory of God. But now ultimately, that question is answered by looking to God's eternal counsel. God's wise plan from the beginning, was to bring his people to the highest perfection, perfection even greater, and glory even higher than Eden. God's plan from the beginning, his eternal plan, was to bring his elect people to that highest glory through Jesus Christ and his cross. And most wisely and most marvelously and most mysteriously, the path to that glory, goes through the deep valley of sin and death. And the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. All things were created by Christ and all things were created for Christ. As the Bible tells us, Christ is first in God's counsel. And that means the fall into sin serves God's good purpose. It serves the supreme demonstration of his power, grace, his mercy, his love, and his glory in the gift of Christ to redeem and perfect a fallen people. So you think about it for a moment. Eden was grand. Man's original state in Eden was glorious. But is not the glory of the kingdom to come? based on the work of Christ and his cross, far exceedingly greater and more glorious? Can you imagine glory without Christ and his cross? And there we can see, though it remains mysterious to us, how in God's sovereign plan, there can be a fall. Because that fall is subservient to the greatest glory And the greatest glorification of us God's people through the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And that's the ultimate answer to that question that sometimes comes to our minds. If 
God made man good in the beginning, why did God make man in such a way that he could fall? It served our greatest good. Having started there and cleared away that question, how can man, created good, fall? Let's now move to look at that historical event of the fall itself. Man fell, and in his fall, he willfully transgressed God's commandments. And that's where sin comes from. That's where evil comes from. That's ultimately where everything bad and hurtful comes from. It all goes back to this spiritual rebellion of the human race against God the Creator who deserves all glory, obedience, and worship. Genesis 3 records that history, and we know that history well. The fall of our first parents was instigated by Satan. If you want to call anyone the author of sin, that title belongs with Satan. He was the first creature who fell. He was an angel who fell, and he fell the farthest, becoming an absolutely depraved being, an enemy of God in all things. And Satan took with him some of the angels that God had created, dragged them into perdition with him. Satan, who hates God, but who cannot attack God directly in any way, for the infinite God, what can any creature do unto him? Satan strikes at the next best thing, so to speak. Unable to attack God directly, he comes into Eden, into the paradise that God had created, and he attacks the creature that he hates the most. That good creature that God had made, the apex of his creation, the human being, and the reason Satan so hated man is he saw something of God in man. Remember what we've learned already, that the heart of man's original goodness is that man was created in the image of God. And that means that man reflected the beauty and glory of God, and Satan saw that and he hated it. And the way for him to strike at God was to strike at his image bearer. And so that's what Satan does. As he comes into the garden, he approaches our first parents and he tempts them. There's the temptation from the outside. Though Adam and Eve in their original righteousness never had any temptations arise from the inside, there was no inclination to sin, yet that devious, treacherous, deceitful tempter could come at them from the outside and worm his way into their hearts and minds. And that's what Satan did. Our Belgian Confession in Article 14 says that our first parents gave ear to the devil. And that's where the trouble started. They gave the devil the time of day. They shouldn't have listened. As you know from Genesis 3, Satan struck up a conversation with Eve. His poisoned words wormed their way into her heart. 
And with cunning deceit, he planted those seeds of doubt in God's word, kindled pride and covetousness in our first parents' hearts. And by that means, he began bending their wills away from God's will so that they began to will disagreeably to God's will. They began to question God's goodness, question whether God really had their best interests in mind. Satan kindled that lust to be like God. That was his sin. Isaiah 14, verse 14. Those were Satan's words. I shall be like the Most High. And that's precisely the temptation that Satan brought to our first parents. You can be like the Most High. Don't be satisfied with your position beneath Him. You can be as God. Determining for yourself good and evil. And that lust kindled by the temptation of the devil gave birth to the first sin. And our first parents, being in honor, understood it not, neither knew their excellency. Another phrase from Belgic Confession, Article 14. What that means is not that they were ignorant of the position that God had given them, the glory and honor with which they had been crowned, but they esteemed it not. The glory and honor with which God had created them, they held in contempt, they coveted more, they lifted themselves up in pride, desiring to be equal with God, to throw off his divine yoke. Discontent with the dignity God had given them, they grasped after Godhood. And that's the heart of every sin. That's the deepest desire of man when he commits sin. I will do my own thing. I will be a law unto myself. I shall be like the Most High. And thus man willfully subjected himself to sin and consequently to death and the curse. Belgian Confession Article 14 emphasizes that. Willfully subjected himself to sin. We mustn't think about the fall of our first parents this way, that they were completely duped. They didn't know what they were doing. Yes, indeed, Satan deceived. Satan instigated the fall. He bears responsibility and will be punished eternally for his role in the fall of man. But Adam and Eve knew what they were doing. They knew the command that God had given them. It was clear as day. The day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. They knew what they were doing. They willfully chose sin and rebellion over their God. And thus brought themselves into bondage. They put on the chains of sin, as it were. They yielded willfully to that temptation. And thus at bottom, man's fall into sin was a covenant transgression. And that helps us see why the fall was so serious. Why sin is so odious in the eyes of God. It's betrayal. Betrayal 
of the worst sort. God had created Adam and Eve, given them life, given them everything, established them in fellowship with himself, placed them in the garden paradise of Eden to live with him and to serve him as his image bearers, as his prophets, priests, and kings under him. And they threw it all away. They disbelieved the word of God. They gave ear to the slander of the devil. They tried to throw off his yoke. They rebelled. They betrayed their God and their creator. And said, I will be God. Covenant betrayal and treachery, the height of ingratitude. That's why the fall is so serious. But now to wrap up the first point. This fall of our first parents was our fall. And that's what we must see. Sometimes people ask the question, alright, there was this historical fall. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, fell into sin. They turned from God. They brought sin and death into the world. But what does that have to do with me? I wasn't there in person. I didn't reach out my hand and pluck the forbidden fruit from the tree and violate God's commandment. What does the fall have to do with you and me? Some want to say there may be a fall, but it's not my fall. The Bible says, yes it is. The fall Of our first parents. Is the fall of all mankind. And to see that requires that we have a biblical conception of the human race. God created the human race. Not as an independent collection of individuals who stand and fall by themselves. God created the human race as an organism. As a body. So you think of the church, which is the new humanity under the second Adam, our head. The church is the body of Christ. We're not a random assembly of individuals who stand or fall on our own, but we are integrally united. We are one people. We are an organism, the body of Christ under Christ the head. God created the human race as a body in the beginning under the first head. Adam, when God made the first man, God made mankind. And so you and I were there. We were there legally, and we were there organically. We were there in our first father. Your human nature and mine was created in our first father, Adam. And our first father, Adam, as our head, represented all of his descendants before the law of God so that his actions are our actions. And so what that means is that when Adam fell, he fell as the head. And his transgression is Legally and justly imputed to all of his descendants. The transgression of the head is the transgression of the body. The legal corporation that he represented. Namely all of mankind. 
And thus condemnation, as Romans 5 teaches us, came upon all men on account of the sin of Adam, our first father. But also this, when Adam, our first father, fell, he corrupted not only his human nature, but he corrupted the human nature. He corrupted mankind. So that all of mankind, which springs from Adam and Eve, inherits a corrupted and sinful nature. Our Belgic Confession, Article 15, describes this as a hereditary disease. It uses that as a picture to describe the transmission of a sinful nature from Adam and Eve down through the generations of the human race and explain why every human being, as the Catechism says, is conceived and born in sin. The fall of Adam and Eve was our fall. It made the whole race guilty. And it corrupted the nature of the whole race so that each and every child born in that human race, going all the way back to its root, inherits at conception that hereditary disease, that corrupt nature. The fall was our fall. And now that answers, decisively settles, the main question that Lord's Day 3 is occupied with. You Remember, the main question of Lord's Day 3 is, who's to blame? Who's at fault for sin? Not God. God made man good in the beginning. In his own image. Capable in all things to will agreeably to his divine will. Man fell. By his own choice, he fell. He gave ear to the devil. He listened and received those worming words of the devil into his heart. He acted on those lies of the devil. He turned his face away from God and betrayed his covenant friend, Sovereign. Like Nathan's finger pointing at David and silencing all of his excuses, the word of God points at the whole human race and says, Thou art the man. That's where the responsibility, the blame for sin lies entirely at man's feet, not at God's. That's the fall. That's our fall. The question that comes next is how far? God created man good, the highest of his earthly creatures, but man fell. How far did we fall? And the answer to this question is one that we so often want to soften a bit. But the hard truth of the word of God is that we fell very, very far. Question seven. Whence then proceeds this depravity of human nature? That's how far we fell. Depravity of human nature. 
And as we will go on to see, man has become wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness, question 8. And then if we go back up to question and answer 6, man has become so wicked and perverse. We have fallen, and we have fallen very, very far. That's the devastating effects of the fall of man, such that every human being is conceived and born in sin. Dead in trespasses and sins. That's the ugly inheritance every one of us receives from our parents, who got it from their parents, going all the way back to the first parents. Depravity of human nature. Let's describe that a little bit. If we want to think about how far the human race fell, if we want to describe the condition of the human race by nature, Apart from the grace of God and Jesus Christ, what man is like by nature, we can describe it using five main ideas. Five ideas beginning with the word total. Man now, as a result of the fall, is totally depraved. He is totally deprived of the image of God. He is totally enslaved to sin. He is totally liable to suffer punishment for that sin. And he is totally separated from God, his creator. That's man by nature now, as a result of the fall. Let's briefly go through those five totals. The leading one, and the one that the catechism emphasizes, and the one that really encompasses all of the rest is total depravity. We're going to focus on that a little more next time when we look at question and answer eight. So we're going to be brief. What is total depravity? Total depravity means man is sinful by nature. Sin, and now emphasis on the second part of that word, sinful. You picture a cup. Man is like a cup. And he's not half full of sin, but he's full to the brim such that he's overflowing. Total depravity means that fallen man's nature, his nature is all that he is, body and soul, all that belongs to being human. His whole nature has become completely sinful. It's not only that every part of him is infected with sin, but every part of him has become completely sinful. The fall warped the human nature into its opposite. God created man to reflect his glory. The fall so twisted and warped man's nature that apart from grace, it doesn't reflect God's glory anymore. And that leads to the second of those totals. Total depravity necessarily implies that man by nature is now totally deprived of that most excellent glory and honor with which he was crowned in the beginning, namely the image of God. Fallen man lost that image. It's not just that the fall tarnished the luster of the image of God a little bit, so that it doesn't shine as brightly anymore. No, the fall stripped it away from man. So that apart from saving grace in Jesus Christ, man no longer has the image of God at all. Children, you remember from last week the picture we use to describe the image of God. The sun and the moon, 
The image of God means we look like God spiritually. We reflect His beauty and glory the same way that the moon reflects the light of the sun. The fall made the human race no longer a reflector of the light of God's glory. Instead, fallen man looks like the devil. He doesn't reflect God's beauty at all anymore, but he reflects the corruption of the devil himself. Fallen man has no true knowledge of God anymore. It's turned into darkness. He has no righteousness anymore. It's turned into perversity. He has no holiness anymore. It's turned into depravity. Totally depraved, totally deprived. Third, totally enslaved to sin. When mankind fell, mankind willfully subjected himself to sin. He put himself in chains. The spiritual chains of guilt, which bind his conscience, and the spiritual chains of the power of sin, which bind his heart, mind, soul, will, hands, feet, eyes, and ears, so that man is no longer able by nature to will agreeably to the will of God. Man now by nature always does the opposite. He wills his own will. He wills against God's will. He's a slave to sin. In utter bondage. To use a figure that Martin Luther used. Fallen man's will is like a beast now. And the devil has his saddle on this beast. And the devil pulls the reins of this beast. And turns this beast whichever way he wants it to go. That's the bondage of fallen man by nature. Fourth, man's fall brings him under total liability to suffer punishment. That's what death is. That's where the curse comes in. Sin is an offense against the most high majesty of God, and it incurs a deadly guilt, the punishment, the just punishment of which is death. Yes, physically, but spiritually and eternally. And that's hell. Man's fall makes mankind liable to that punishment under God's just judgment. Fifth and finally, man by nature is totally separated from God. And this is the ultimate horror of sin. Sin separates. Sin estranges. Sin fosters enmity and makes enemies. Sin exiles man from God's presence and favor so that mankind's fall has cut man off from his creator and put him under the holy wrath of his holy creator. And apart from the grace of God then, fallen man can have no fellowship with God. And fellowship with God is the essence of life. Sin casts the human race away from God, away from His favor, and that is the depths of misery. You put those five totals together, and that's what you see described in Psalm 14. Psalm 14 is a candid and an honest description of what mankind has become as a result of the fall. That's our misery. 
We're in the first section of the catechism. Remember how great our sins and miseries are. That's the first part of saving knowledge. And that's what the catechism is impressing upon us. As we see the fall, and we see that it was our fall, and we see the aftermath of the fall, what that has brought about, how deeply it has corrupted the human race, we see how terrible our misery is. How utterly hopeless we would be if left to ourselves. This is how far our race has fallen. No man can climb out. We say with the psalmist, Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion. When the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice. We can say that. Even as we've looked these hard truths in the face, we can say that. Because unlike the world, we have hope. We have hope. Certain hope. Because our gracious God caught his people. Even when they were in free fall, we fell. We fell far, very far. But our fall did not stop God from keeping his people and saving them. Our fall did not lead to God's plan falling apart. In fact, our sovereign God who is powerful and good beyond our ability to comprehend uses this fall for our greater good. We fell. But grace ensured that every single elect child of God has fallen into the arms of Jesus Christ. Fall was no surprise to God. Though it's man's fault entirely, and though it aggrieves God, make no mistake, when we speak about God's sovereignty even over the fall, we must not let that lead us to think that the fall doesn't really bother God because it's included in His eternal plan. No, the fall into sin greatly aggrieves God. We cannot express or fully comprehend how grievous And how ugly and how terrible sin is in the eyes of the holy God. Yet nonetheless, most marvelously and mysteriously, God uses our fall to bring us to even higher glory than Adam and Eve had in paradise. Through Christ. Who's at the center of God's plan. You can picture it this way. Two mountains with a deep valley between them. And this beautiful mountain over here. Its mountain peak is called Eden. That's where man was placed in the beginning. Good. Beautiful. But on the other side of this deep valley. There's another mountain which is far higher. And this mountain peak over here 
is called the new heavens and the new earth. Or the kingdom of Christ perfected. The covenant consummated. And this mountain peak is far, far higher than the mountain peak of Eden over here. In God's wisdom, the only way from here to way up here is through this deep valley called sin and death, called this fallen world. But down in the deep valley stands the cross. Upon that cross, the crucified Christ, our Emmanuel, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And Christ in his cross is the way from this dark valley up to the mountain peak called new heavens and new earth. He's the only way. He's the all-sufficient way. He is the perfect way. And when we have that picture before our minds, what a wonderful story God's eternal counsel has written. How much more do we appreciate the love and grace of God when we have walked through that dark valley? When we have seen the Christ crucified for us? To bring us out of that valley up to that mountain peak. There's nothing more wonderful, nothing more beautiful, nothing more glorious than that. And that's God's purpose with time and history. To supremely glorify himself through this Christ. And he has wed to his own supreme glorification, our glorification, through Christ. That makes it all worth it. That makes all of the affliction and all of the trouble in this sin-cursed world light in comparison to the eternal weight of glory which is ours through Jesus Christ and awaits us at the mountain peak, new heavens and new earth, where we're going. We fell, we fell far. We fell into the arms of Jesus Christ. When our first parents fell by their own fault, Christ, the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, the mediator of the covenant ordained before the foundation of the world, was already there to catch them and to catch their elect children and to to rescue them from their fall. We see that even in the gospel history in Genesis 3. What does God do right after Adam and Eve fall? He goes after them. Not to destroy them, but to give them the gospel promise of Christ and his cross. Just as Adam and Eve slipped down the side of that mountain peak Eden into the dark valley, God immediately comes and sets before them Christ and the cross. Promising the seed of the woman who would bruise the head of the serpent and make them happy again. And now connect that with Christmas. We're celebrating Christmas. We look forward to a Christmas program in a moment. And having heard God's word about our fall, 
And about mankind's natural depravity, does it not all the more increase our Christmas joy? Christ, the babe born in Bethlehem, worshipped by shepherds and magi, He is God the Son, came down from heaven into that dark valley to rescue us, to save us from everything we've talked about in the sermon this morning. From those five totals, our total depravity, Our total deprivation, our total bondage, our total punishment, our total separation. He saves us from it all. He came into our darkness to share our flesh and blood. To suffer the punishment of our sins for us in his flesh. To pay the price for our depravity with his own blood. He came to be our Emmanuel to lift us up out of the darkness. He came to be our second, our second Adam to stand and face temptation and overcome where Adam had fallen. How far we fell. How far down God reached in Christ to catch us. How far Christ came to redeem us. And how far up again. He lifts us. How much our thankfulness and our joy ought to be this morning. As we sing and as we listen to the children of the church sing, let our hearts rejoice in Christ our Lord. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the hope and the joy that we have even in the face of the hard truths of the fall of man and the sinfulness that yet remains in us. We thank Thee for our Deliverer, Jesus Christ, who came down from heaven to rescue us from the deep valley of sin and to be our way, our truth, our life to guide us to the mountain peak, the new heavens and the new earth, thy kingdom and covenant made perfect. Get us there, Father. We're weak, we're weary, yet we trust in thee. Though we often stray, thou wilt get us there. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Bring the captivity of Israel home. To dwell in thy house forever. Amen.